Join me in Matthew chapter 21. We don't need a lot of introduction here this morning. Um, as we said last week, the last or the next seven chapters of Matthew from 21 to 27 is going to cover about six days time period in what we'll call the Passion Week of the Lord, the suffering of the Lord is upcoming. Um, some, most of, of allude to this, as this event today in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11 as on Sunday and most people believe that, and that's where I still hold. I did read one prominent author who was lobbying for this to be on Monday, and I guess it could be a little confusing, but the basic idea, we think this happens on Sunday following the previous Sabbath that would have been the Sabbath right before that on Saturday. Uh, so again, not a lot needs to be made. Watch this. Passover is occurring down in the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord's been up in Galilee with his disciples. They've come down by, so they've gone around Samaria, come down by the Jordan River where he's done some healing. And he comes through, and last week we're, we were in the city of Jericho where he healed two blind men. And now the ascension has been made. And again, this, the night before this, he has already spent the night at a town called Bethany. And now it is the next morning, and he's getting ready to make his entry into the city of Jerusalem. So if you would, kind of a shorter uh, introductory than we usually do. Verse 1. Let's notice this. By the way, remember there's large crowds last week. Now when they, this would obviously be the Lord and his disciples, but also these crowds. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so they're close, came to, in this town right here, I looked it up online. Uh, you can hit these little voice things that'll tell you how to pronounce. And actually this is confusing. Uh, I've always said it one way pulled it up uh, with some folks who would have more expertise, but they, they've said it two different ways, so I'm, I'll probably default to the one that's closest to the one I've, I've heard most of my life. I have heard this town called Bethphage. That's one pronunciation or something similar to that. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or it could be Bethphage, right? So Bethphage, I've always called it Bethpage, but Bethphage, so kind of an F sound. Back to verse 1 again. Now, when they drew near to, the, to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives would be just on the east side of Jerusalem. In fact, apparently it's just a little higher. The top of it is slightly higher than the top of Jerusalem. And there's a valley. So at this point, the Lord's about three-quarter of a mile away from the city of Jerusalem is around what we think. All this journey, we're down now to the final three-quarter of a mile. Then, at the end of verse 1, Jesus sent two disciples, uh, you and you, got an assignment for you, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, Bethphage, we would assume that's the one, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So a colt would be like a, a mule or a horse or a donkey that is a male, typically like a young male would be a colt. Uh, really, the idea could be extended as far as up to four years old, but we're going to have a word in a minute that's going to let us know that it's on the younger side of that, really about a year old, because we're going to see the, the word foal in, in verse 5 in a moment. And if you heard that, you'd almost think I know what in the world I'm talking about, like horses and stuff. I don't. Just look it up online. All right. Continue. Lord sends two disciples. He tells them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt, again, young male donkey, with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
Any problems, you just say the Lord needs them. They'll send them at once. Now Matthew pans out and Matthew interjects for us what's going on. He says in verse 4, this, Matthew's inspired by the Holy Spirit, this took place. So what's happened there, going to get the dawn, what's this all about and what's going to happen? He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. And actually, so he doesn't name the prophet the primary prophecy here is from Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, but even with a little bit of a flavor of a verse in Isaiah, chapter 62, but primarily Isaiah, uh, Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9. So again, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying it's 500 years earlier, quote, say to the daughter of Zion. So Zion tells us a specific prophecy is not just Israel as a whole, it's very specific, it's Jerusalem. Zion being the portion, the mountaintop uh, that has to do, that, was, goes, that went by that title of Zion, there around where the temple is. So this is a very specific prophecy, prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, Behold, look, pay attention, behold, your king is coming. He's coming to you. How? Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the great burden bearer of sin will be carried into the city that will reject him on the back of a burden bearer of mankind's weights and things that need carried. So this foal, about a year old donkey, will be carrying the greatest burden bearer of our sin. Verse 6, that's the prophecy. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey, and by the way, Mark and Luke give us more insight as to details that happened in the little village. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colts. There's two. Matthew's the only one that points out there's two. In fact, the other two gospels point out that this colt has never been ridden, which makes what's about to happen all the more unusual that a colt that has never been ridden would just let someone ride on them, and especially in light of all the movement and the noise and the crowds that are going to be around this young colt. But he's actually being ridden by the person that made him. And so he submits, verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. So the disciples are putting their cloaks, their outer garments, on the two donkeys, and he sat on them. The them is the clothes. So we know from prophecy and the other gospels, he's actually sitting on the colt. He's not going back and forth between both, though both have the outer garments of the disciples thrown over them. Verse 8. Most, so here they go. The procession is beginning. The last little ways to Jerusalem. Most of the crowd, by the way, large crowd is the idea. Multitudes is used in some other translations. Most of the crowd spread their, their cloaks on the road. So you can kind of see the idea. They're making a path. They spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. One of the other Gospels tells us these were palm tree branches. So fronds from palm trees are being put on the Lord, and cloaks are on, on the road in front of the Lord, and cloaks are being made on the path before him as he's making his approach. And the crowds that went before him, you can almost imagine it seems maybe there's some cycling that is taking place. 
because they're putting their cloaks, and then the Lord would go past that, and no doubt they would come back and get their cloak. Now they're at the back, and maybe they move to the front and put it down again. Who knows how this is happening, but verse 9. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. We saw that phrase last week. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These crowds before, crowds behind. You can see he's just amassed by this throng of humanity, these large, zealous crowds. What are they shouting? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then he gets to Jerusalem. And when he entered Jerusalem, all this going on, the whole city. So it's not a super large city at that time. The actual area. And so when we hear the numbers that we think are doing this, you could almost understand why it would say, verse 10, as he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Like, this has everybody's attention. Some are even troubled by this, saying, who is this? So this is not like a, who is this? Jesus, the prophet, who is this? Jesus, no, it's not it. It's like, who is this? Literally, some people don't know who this is, and there's a reason. And the crowd, so you should already start feeling like, wait, there's one mass of people, and there's this other more constant to the story mass of people, and they kind of come from two different angles, and there are, verse 11, the crowds, so you had the people in Jerusalem, they're already in there, and here comes the crowds with Jesus, and the people in Jerusalem are stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, as they say this with great pride, no doubt. Let's notice a few things in our text this morning, these verse, verse 1 through 11. First of all, let's focus for a few minutes. I will drill down a little bit here, maybe longer than we would think. And we could do this on several places in the gospel. But this seems to be a good one this morning for us to do this. And let's notice that, number one, Jesus displays omniscience. Jesus very clearly displays omniscience. After you write that, back up. Hopefully you have your Bible in front of you. Look again at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, so they're getting close, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find... You will find. Now, some folks say this is a simple, Jeff, nothing special here. This is just a simple prearrangement. The Lord must have snuck away at some point when the disciples in the crowd didn't know, makes his way into Bethphage, sets up an arrangement with these donkeys, and now it's time, and he sends two disciples, and he knows the time of day, and everything's supposed to be ready, and all of this. And this whole, the, the Lord needs them, that's just a passphrase or a code phrase that's going to trigger to the agreement. Oh, okay. Guys, that's not what's taking place. This is totally being presented on the same level as evidence of the omniscience of Jesus Christ in the same way that he was able to say, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and on this trip to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, and we're going to be handed over to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees and the, el and the elders and the chief priests, and they're going to put me on trial, and they're going to condemn me, and then they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and they will mock me and scourge me and crucify me, and then I will be raised again the third day. So all this is the same as that. The Lord knows fully what has taken place. So look at verse 2 and 3, and you'll see what the Lord, he gives great detail of exactly what they're going to encounter. And again, look at the other Gospels. This is exactly what they encounter. Notice, 
He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will let them. He will send them at once. I looked at that over and over. You know what I saw? I saw at least six things that the Lord knows details. The first one you say, that's not that impressive. Here's what he says. See that village in front of you? It's going to have two donkeys. It may have had more than two donkeys. It's going to have at least two donkeys. Okay, say, Jeff, probably most of those villages did. Second thing, he says, as soon as you enter, immediately upon entering, you're going to be able to see these two donkeys. So they're going to be at the front, not at the distant, not in the middle part of the, of the village. Right at the beginning of the village, you'll see two donkeys. Number three, they're going to be tied. Number four, one of them is going to be a female. Number five, the other one is going to be a colt, a male, young male. Presumably, this is the mother, and this is her offspring. And we know that it would be a foal based off of the prophecy. And then we know that if anybody's going to ask you, which in fact they do, then you just say this. So we, the Lord's telling them details of what's going to happen because he knows the details. And when you put Matt, Mark and Luke in there, here's what you find. Sure enough, they go in the town. There are two donkeys tied up at the beginning of the town. One is a female and one's a, a young male. And they go up and start untying them. Mark says that some were standing nearby. Luke identifies the sum standing nearby as the owners. And sure enough, I'm reading between the lines. You know how I always do, right? The owners are over here talking. Over there's their donkeys tied up. And they're talking. Here comes two total strangers come up and start untying. And it's like, hey, hey, yo, <laughs> what in the world? Can we help you? <laughs> like, what are you doing untying our donkeys? To which the two disciples probably go, oh, boy. Uh, the Lord needs them. And they go, oh, okay. And they go right back to it. And here they come. It is just like the Lord says. So point I want to make this morning, nothing that happens in this week is going to surprise the Lord because he's omniscient. Again, I, we, I'm not going into all of how he restricted his omniscience at certain times while he was on earth. What I'm talking about as the Son of God, this person that we're talking about is omniscient, and he draws on that, and now where he is in heaven, he has full omniscience at his permanent and continuous disposal. He knows all things. Hold your spot here. I want to just quickly look at two other passages to, to support this. Go, if you would, Hebrews chapter 4. Flip over to Hebrews 4. Very quickly, this is following that passage that says how the Word of God is quick to live and it's powerful and it's sharp and it makes a division between soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerns thoughts and intents. Watch the verse right after that, Hebrews 4 verse 13. Following that, how the Lord, His Word, He is, he is of such a nature that His very Word decides the difference between soul and spirit. So we can debate that what it is. And between thoughts and intentions, verse 13 says, And no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all, all creatures, are naked. None's hidden from his sight. All creatures are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All creatures. What that means is that every human being is naked and exposed before God. Every little insect is 
that is now buried right now beneath the earth in some kind of colony working its way down there. It may not know about God, but God knows fully about it. Not one of them is out of his sight. In the deepest, deepest caves where some bats or other insects or some creatures where mankind's never even made it that deep, God knows about them. They're not hidden, though it's so dark in there. In, in the deepest part of the ocean, which will sustain some form of sea life that no human being has ever yet seen, God has some creatures down there that he has made just for his glory and pleasure, and he knows all about them. This includes all creatures Angels and demons are created beings, so none of them are hidden out of his sight. No creature is hidden. Flip over to 1 John. said we'd be there in a moment. Let's go there. 1 John chapter 3. Flip quickly. 1 John chapter 3. Now, really, we could have put a lot of the text around this, but we'll not. Look at verse 20. If you have your Bible open, you'll have an advantage here because you can see the before and the after. Verse 20 says, it's strange because we're jumping right in the middle. For whenever our heart condemns us, for whenever our heart condemns us, so sometimes we experience that, we just don't have a lot of confidence before God. Our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So my main point is that last phrase. If you want to go home, and here's what you want to do. Study like, what in the world is the first part of that verse about? Go back to verse 18. Here's what it says. We are not just to say loving words. We're to live loving lives. And when we live loving lives, that gives us assurance that we really are the children of God. Not everybody out there that lives loving lives are the children of God. But when God's people live loving lives, love for him and love for people, not just in word but in deed, that assures us we really are the children of God. That gives us confidence and boldness to go before the Lord in faith and make requests. And those kind of faith-filled prayers are the ones that get answered. But with that in mind, verse 20 says, the idea of whenever our heart condemns us, sometimes we do not live loving lives, and we start feeling conviction and guilt, and our conscience starts beating us down. And we have no assurance and no confidence and boldness and faith to go before the Lord. And our prayers aren't being answered, but praise the Lord, even in the middle of that, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. It doesn't mean that in that moment I've lost my salvation because the Lord knows who are his. Why? Because he knows everything. God knows everything. You say, Jeff, what's your point to Matthew 21? God knows everything, and Jesus is God. Everything. You say, like, Jeff, you think God knows how many hairs are on my head? Based off of the scriptures, I can promise you God, no, and some of you like, he doesn't have to, no, I'm sorry. Never mind. Um, God knows every hair on your head, and it changes. He knows the length and the color. God knows literally every blade of grass. Let this sink in. Every grain of sand. The Bible says he has numbered all the stars. He made them all. They're not out of his control. They're fully in his sight. He knows every single star. I, again, every grain of sand. He knows all things. You have a quote from a man named A.W. Tozer. Can you just, I want you to hear the whole quote, and then you'll come back and write the thought that he has quickly. So let me read it first, all right? You ready? Tozer writes. So hear it first. He knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly. And with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists 
or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. Now write the note if you're taking notes. He knows all things that can be known. All, if it can be known, he knows it. How does he know it? This he knows instantly and with a fullness of perfection. I stopped your note there because I didn't want to give you that long answer. We wouldn't have time. This he knows instantly and with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. In fact, Tozer offers the following. A little later, he concludes the thought this way. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows nothing better than any other thing but all things equally. He knows all that everyone else combined knows, put together, he knows all of that, and he knows everything that no one else knows. He knows all things. Now, I know you, most of you are thinking, Jeff, this is not great revelation, but we need to think about this. God knows all things equally. Again, notice what he puts at the end, not on your hand, he says, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows nothing better than any other thing, all things equally. You remember when you were learning your multiplication tables, your ones were really easy, right? I know my ones. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, off you. Your twos, not that hard. Two, four, six, eight. Your fives, not that hard. Your tens, the elevens, not that. But those nines and the eights and the sevens and the twelves, okay, you're like, you're firing off these, and then the teacher asks you these, and you're kind of taking a second to recall. God never has to recall. God never has to, like, drum up. He always knows all things at all times. He knows all things. In fact, write this down. The whole tone of Scripture is that God's omniscience is just assumed on every page of Scripture. It's just assumed. It's the whole tone as you're reading the Bible. So here we have Jesus coming in and telling his disciples what's going to be ahead in, these, in this town that's in front of them. And he gives the details. He knows fully. Nothing is catching him by surprise. So before we leave our first point, what should we do with this knowledge of God's omniscience? First, make it personal. I promise you. We could single every one of you out, and here's what we'd find. The Lord knows your tastes, your preferences. He knows your history. He knows your desires. He knows your dream. You have a dream. He knows your daydream. Some of you fall into the same. If given time or your mind's not able to think about something, you're like, oh, I get free thought time. You slide into a certain kind. He knows exactly your pattern. So he knows, again, what you hope. He knows your anxiety. Everyone here, he knows what makes you anxious. He knows what makes you afraid. I thought of one of mine this morning. I wasn't even studying this. I won't tell you what it is because I don't want anybody ever to do it. There's one fear in my mind. The Lord knows my fears. He knew you before you were born. He knew you while you were in your mother's womb. He knows you in your childhood. He knows that big event that happened in your life that's really shaped a lot of who you are, be it some great thing or that thing that you, your brain has subconsciously tried to suppress. The Lord saw it. He knows it all together. He knows what happened. He was watching. He saw it. He knows your actions, every action. He knows every word. He knows your intention. He knows the motive, why you did that, why you said that. Somebody else may be a question your motive and they got it wrong. God knows your full motive. 
Maybe they think your motive was good and God knows your motive was very selfish and prideful. God knows it all. So what should we do, what should we do with this? J.C. Ryle offers the following. He says, we are never out of sight of Christ. Say, Jeff, again, we kind of know this. It's ready to move. Hang on. He says, this is a thought that ought to exercise a restraining and sanctifying effect on our souls. This should have a restraining effect that God, we're never out of sight of Christ. What's going on in this town ahead of them, he knows fully. He knows fully about you right now. He's watching. In fact, the Bible talks about something called the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Write this down. Awareness that God is always watching us and that God cares about what we're doing. That should lead us to what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Do you have the fear of the Lord? Maybe this morning, there's no maybe There's no maybe, Jeff. This is a fact in our room or some watching online right now. You have this little pet sin that you've been performing. And you're the only one that knows about it, you think. It's just you. Your kids don't know. Your spouse doesn't know. Your friends don't know. Or maybe there's that one other person because that's who you do this activity with. And you think you got your whole little plan and you got your method and routine that keeps it hid Just know that it is not a secret. It is known. It is fully known. All that you've done, it's fully known. In fact, we may never know it, but this is known by the most important person in the world, in the universe. Christ knows fully. So this should cause us to have a restraining, sanctifying effect on our souls. Before I go to our second point, I want to quickly, what should we do with the omniscience of God? You with me? Watch. Take the omniscience, God knows everything, couple that with his truthfulness. He knows, because if you take away omniscience, and God is not omniscient and not omnipotent, but truthful, then he could say some things not knowing that it isn't actually going to happen. He might have good intentions, but not really knowing. But when we take his omniscience, Couple it with his truthfulness and then add on to that his omnipotence to always make sure that what he sees will happen, what he knows will happen, what he says will happen, then you can take it to the bank. And there's no way I could stop, and this would be a whole message, say what the Bible says is God's word. We can take it to the bank. This is absolutely going to take place. We can't preach it all. But I'll throw a few at you. Ready? God tells us you will have tribulation. In this life, you will have tribulation. So I don't know why it is we get shocked when hard, difficult things come in our life. So I'm not saying go around kind of morbid like, is is that it? Are you the one bringing tribulation? It's probably the next thing. I better not drive. Like, no, no, live your life. And when difficult things come, don't act shocked. There's some folks who teach and preach in a way that make us think that if anything difficult is happening in your life, you're out of God's will. No, the Lord has said tribulation will come. In fact, he says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So you're like, some of you are like perplexed, like I can't believe we're trying to do the right thing. And I know this person that are doing the right thing. And this is happening by this group of people. And it's like they're being beaten down. Yeah, there are different levels of persecution. Don't be shocked. Expect it. But in the middle of all those promises, there's these great ones. And there are too many to just read right now. But God, with his omniscience and his truthfulness coupled with his omnipotence, has promised that with that temporary 
difficulty, tribulation, and persecution along with that, that eternal, unimaginable glory awaits all the people who will put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about eternal, unimaginable. He, ha- he knows this. He see, How can you talk about eternity? Eternity is a long, long, because I know everything. And I make happen what I will. And I cannot lie. If I say it's going to be, it will be. Now, here's what's amazing to me. As the Lord makes these promises about eternal life, everlasting life, knowing the worst about our future. He already knows the worst. That sounds like security to me. That's why when I read Romans chapter 8 and the end of the passage, and he says that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, then that means nothing. Once you have truly trusted Christ in him alone, and his Holy Spirit has come into your life, you are sealed. You're sealed. You're permanent. You cannot lose that no matter what. He talks about no things present, no things to come. He talks about no angels or rulers or powers, nor any other creature. In other words, he covers it all. We cannot lose this. And then the thought that I leave you on this first point before we get to the second is this one. His omniscience. Can I sell you on this? His omniscience actually enhances his grace. Like what? Here's what I find. And this is true of you. If you ever have those times where you, just being honest, put aside false humility, and just being honest, in these moments, you love the Lord. You love him with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You love him. Do you know what he does? Like you've confessed all known sin. You're seeking the Lord. You want him and him only, and you're taking all the steps to pursue the Lord. You know what he does? In those moments, he draws close to us. He loves us. Get what I'm saying? He deals with us in that moment. He deals with us in that moment, though he knows full well the exact timing, the exact nature of, and the full extent of the very next time that we're going to sin against him. The Lord deals with us. Like, you love him, what does he do? He starts manifesting his presence, and he draws close to you. He draws close to us. He loves us. He always loves us, but he he manifests his presence, dealing with us in the present, though he already knows the very next time, be it next week, the big thing, be it the next day, be it 20 minutes after this awesome time with the Lord, 20 minutes later, sometimes you have failed the Lord with a massive sin of commission or a massive sin of omission. He knows full well, and yet he doesn't hold it against you right now. That's grace. I wouldn't do that. I've said that over and over. If I know that you are going to hurt me and offend me in a great way, you're going to hurt people that I love, we may be getting along right now, you may think, but I'm going to start treating you harshly right now because I already know that's what I would do with omniscience. Praise the Lord. He doesn't hold it against us. He knows full well what Judas is going to do, but nothing in the text lets us ever think. The disciples, when they knew that it's one of the 12 that are going to betray the Lord, they never thought, it's it's Judas. You think, oh, yeah, duh. Have you ever seen Jesus smile at Judas? (laughs) Never. You ever notice how he always stays away from him, and he always talks harshly to him, and how he has to sit at the end of the table? It's Judas. We knew it had to be one, so the Lord had been bringing him along. Never. They don't know who it is. Judas is sitting close. He loves Judas in this moment, knowing what Judas... We have a great God. He's very gracious, number two. To Matthew 21, let's notice secondly, 
Jesus fulfills prophecy. Jesus fulfills prophecy. So why is this happening with the donkeys? Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah, 500 years earlier, tries to help specifically Jerusalem. Hey, Jerusalem, here's how you'll know your king. Others will ride into town on a donkey, but listen, your king must ride into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a young male donkey. That's how he'll come to you in his first coming. Here's the idea. Don't look for him to come on a chariot. Don't look for him to come on a war horse. Can I add this time? Don't look for him to come that way this time. He'll come another time in that power and great glory. Now, guys, think with me just for a moment. Jesus fulfills prophecy, and we see verse 5. Matthew says he does this on purpose to fulfill this prophecy. So this, this is kind of strange. Do you, do, you, do you guys feel it? Like, if you just read this over, if, if, this would be tough. If you read the whole book of Matthew every day for a month, I promise you, if you read it just in flow, continuous, t- together in one sitting, when you got to this point, you would feel like, what in the world is this? This is a major shift. Jeff, what are you talking about? This is a major shift. For two years, every time someone discovers a fuller identity of who the Lord is, what has he been saying? What has he been saying? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. His disciples, verbalized by Peter, he says, who do men say that I am? They say something to this and this and this. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't tell anyone. When he heals someone, and they're all excited, and they're ready to go tell him, he says, don't tell anyone what I've done. Now, we know that the crowds keep coming because miraculous things cannot be hid, and his great teaching and preaching, and so people are coming to see the Lord Jesus, but he's constantly squelching premature notoriety and fame. He's constantly putting it down. When he casts out devils from people, the devils start speaking to him, and what do they call him? They call him the Son of God, because they know who he is. They've lived in heaven with him before they were kicked out. We don't know this body, Jesus. We know you, the Christ, You're more than the Christ. You're the son. What does he always do? He makes them be quiet. And now here he comes into Jerusalem, and he's doing something deliberately on purpose. What's taking place? Now he deliberately fulfills this prophecy out of Zechariah. That's not just some random prophecy. It is very clearly a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Christ. And by fulfilling this on purpose, the Lord is inviting full-throated declarations, full-throated praises of him, knowing all the while that by doing this action and allowing what's going to happen because of it among the people, that it's going to stir up his enemies and enrage them even more. And by doing that, they're going to pursue his death, and ultimately they will cause him to have his death on the cross on a human level because it's going to continue and kick in motion the eternal plan of God for salvation that requires Jesus for dying on the cross. That's what he's doing. He's intentionally, deliberately fulfilling a messianic prophecy. This is unusual. I know you're writing that, but hopefully you can write that and listen at the same time. Some scholars have noted that 
the life of Christ fulfills some 300 plus prophecies. We're looking at one today. 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ. I'm not harming the scriptures by saying what I'm about to say. The majority of these prophecies were done to Jesus, done by other people, or they would fall into category, and this is important, if Jesus, this man, was just a man and not anything special, not the true son of God, if he's faking it, just trying to make a name for himself, then these 300 prophecies that he fulfilled, he could not have fabricated them. There's no way possible. Many, I'm going to give you several, right? Just a short little list, but several. He could not have fabricated being a descendant of Abraham. That's qualification. That's one. A descendant of Jacob. There's two. A descendant of Judah, not the other sons of Abraham, not the other sons of Jacob, but not, not the, either of the sons of Isaac it has to be Jacob's line, not any of just Jacob's 12 sons. It's the line of Judah. He must be a son of Jesse, a descendant of Jesse, and a descendant of David. He didn't choose, again, being unborn. He doesn't, like, make things happen. I want to be born in Bethlehem. He can't fabricate that. He can't cause his parents, when he's just this little child, to escape from Herod down into Egypt so that he can come up out of Egypt and then cause them to choose to go live in Galilee and particularly over in Nazareth so that he will be called a Nazarene. He does not, in anywhere in our text, ask people to spit in his face, crucify me, mock me. When you kill me, make sure I'm crucified with transgressors, thieves. Bury me in a rich man's grave. Hey, when you betray me, make sure it's for 30 pieces of silver. 30, not 29. Make sure it's silver, not gold. He does not, all these 300 things, but here's one. Here's one, the Lord's like, he's going out of his way to make sure that he does this one. And so we're wondering why. Two things I'll offer you, maybe three. The third one you've already written. One is very simple. Why is he doing this? Because the Father willed it. It's been prophesied, and it must be fulfilled. And the Lord is submitting to the Father's plan. So he does it. Hey, he could have walked into Jerusalem, but he doesn't. Why? Why this? So he goes out of his way to fulfill this. Well, one, to fulfill it because it's the Father's plan, submitting to the Father's plan. Number two, can I offer you this? To stir up attention. R.T. France writes it this way. He says, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is deliberately dramatic. It begins with two actions designed to draw attention and to provoke people to think about Jesus' messianic claim. Do you see the other action? If you have your Bible open, you already see where we're heading next week. Two big things that are going to draw the attention of the city of Jerusalem. One is the triumphal entry, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at Jesus cleanses the temple. So again, France writes, his arrival in Jerusalem is deliberately dramatic. It begins with these two designated things to draw attention to him. Just, guys, just use your mind. Use the aerial view that we talked about last week. You got your little, what are those little things? Drone, you got your little drone, you're back in time, and off your drone is going and look over this massive crowd, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are walking, and the one could be walking, he's made it all this way, he could go the last three quarter of a mile, but one is riding on a donkey into a young foal colt into the city of Jerusalem to fulfill. Yeah, he's drawing attention, knowing it will enrage his enemies 
and kick in motion the eternal plan of God. Just before we hit our third thought this morning, would you write this down? As we look at verse 4 and 5, we see the deliberateness, intentionality of Christ. We can't miss his boldness. I haven't studied next week's text yet about cleansing the temple, but I'm sure we're going to talk about these same two points because it's so obvious. Our Lord is bold. He has great courage. His enemies are seeking to kill. At this point, he knows that his enemies in the city of Jerusalem have already sent out word. It's already, it's already happened. If you see Jesus coming, you tell us where he's at because they are seeking his death and destruction. What does the Lord, if I knew someone in that city wants to kill me, a whole group of people, and they're the powerful people in the city, I'm not going in that city, but the Lord knows full well. What is he going to do? Is he going to avoid the city of Jerusalem? No. Does he sneak into the city of Jerusalem? Just kind of sneak. Does he go Jedi? Does he take his cloak and make a hood? Kind of, hey, guys, we've got to split up, though. All 13 of them, even with all the thousands. They're used to seeing the 13 of us together, and they'll know it. Like, today it'll be me and you, and tomorrow it'll be me and you, and let's just kind of, and I'm going to kind of, but I want to go in. No. Does he only come in at night? No. No, what does he do? He goes in such a way that he grabs the attention of the entire city of Jerusalem. Hey, I'm here. I've arrived. We see the boldness of Christ. Number three. Number three this morning, verses 8 through 11. Would you notice with me that Jesus receives praise? Jesus receives praise. Go back to verse 7. The two disciples went and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. So they make saddle blankets out of their clothes. Their outer garment is the clothes. Verse number 8, I'm not going to do it as an outline, but just kind of mentally I noticed after the fact, like, oh, okay. Verse 8 is about action. Verse 8 is worshipful action. Verse 9 is worshipful words. Verse 8, worshipful, adoring actions. Verse 9, worshipful, adoring words. The disciples begin by putting their cloaks. I mean, this is their garment. This is what they've taken for the week at Passover. This is what they have, and they're using it like we don't want our Lord sitting directly on a donkey, so we're going to have him sit on our cloaks. But then we notice verse number 8, most of the crowd all around him spread their cloaks on the road. You can see they're making as what we would say in our day. They're rolling out the red carpet and they're bringing out these palm branches and spreading them on the road in front of them. So what's taking place? This is their sign to the Lord that we love you, we adore you, we accept you, we surrender to you, we submit to you, we know who you are. We're giving you our very lives. Anything that we have is at your disposal. It's all yours. Again, the idea, we're surrendering to you. What a great picture. But as you're looking at verse 8, I want to draw attention just for a moment. The word crowd, most of the crowd. Guys, this is a crowd. I want you to get your drone, get your viewpoint. What are we talking about? Not on the handout, just hear it first. When we're talking about crowds in verses 8 and 9 that are leading this procession with the Lord in the middle of it, guys, I'm very confident in saying we're at the very minimum, at the minimum, talking about tens of thousands of people. At the minimum. No joke. We might be talking about 
40, 50,000 people. No joke. We might be talking over 100,000 people. You go pull up, something like that. We might be talking about a couple of hundred thousand people with a man in the middle riding on a donkey, and it's going to be a slow, and they just keep throwing out, and they're shouting that many people. That's why verse 10 is going to say the whole city is stirred up like, what in the world is going on? What? And it just keeps coming and coming, and it's getting louder and louder, and it dominates, and the whole city's all stirred up because tens of thousands, if not 100,000, 50,000, 100,000, a couple hundred thousand people are just swarming, have Jesus in them. And you're like, Jeff, where do you get such ideas? Well, this is where. Adult Jewish males, 20 years old and up, were expected to attend three feasts in Jerusalem. They were expected to do that. Didn't always do that. Many would go to three. Some would go to only two. Most would go to at least one. If you were going to go to only one, I can't say this for sure, but it would be most likely this is the feast that you would go to. It was the first one in the year. This is the one where they're celebrating freedom and deliverance from Egypt back in Moses' time. Lots of excitement. Lots of patriotism among the Jews. Write this down. Multiple scholars have estimated, based off of the number of sacrifices that were recorded and taken place at the temple, that Jerusalem would, on a regular basis, at the time of Passover, draw over 2 million Jewish worshipers to the city of Jerusalem. Over 2 million. And they would come from all places around the world, but many of them would come from Galilee. And I talked earlier about there's two crowds. Well, this is the Galilean crowd that's following the Lord. It's been building down in Jericho, but as days have gone by, no doubt people are pacing themselves, and more are arriving, and the numbers have just swelled. Barclay writes it this way. He says, Jews from every corner of the world made their way to the greatest of their national feast festivals. Jesus, let this sink in, he writes, Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. It was into a city surging with people who were keyed up with religious expectations that he came. So see this one man riding on a donkey and thousands upon thousands screaming and yelling, adoring, worshiping at the top of their lungs, making their way to the city of Jerusalem. He said, Jeff, what makes you think they're so fervent and zealous? I want us to just catch a clue. Just look over. This is just a hint. Don't have time to develop it. Look at Luke 19. Look over, flip over. It's the last one I'm going to have you look at. Just one verse, Luke 19. Very quickly. Luke 19, verse 11. So Luke writes about some things that Matthew and Mark don't cover. Luke gives a lot of parables, more parables than the others. So again, boy, I better not even say that. Why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or why Matthew and Mark don't cover certain things, I don't know. John ends up covering some amazing things that are not covered by any of the other three. But Zacchaeus, you see at the beginning of Luke 19, the Lord deals with Zacchaeus. He ends up going to his house. But look at verse 11. Here's our clue. It's just a clue. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. It's going to be the one about the money denominations. Some get ten minas and, and, and five and one, and some one goes and buries it, and the others multiply it. And so he tells that parable. Luke records it. Matthew doesn't. This happens before where we're at in the story. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Watch the last line. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's a clue. They, so here's a commentary on what's going on in the crowds around the Lord and his disciples. 
they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They're honestly of a belief. When we get there, this is it. Guys, I believe standing on the hillside of Mount of Olives, throwing their cloaks. I'm, I'm reading between the lines. I know I do that a lot. But hey, you ought to read the Bible that way without harming the text. Really get in the story. I'm picturing these disciples not able to, to talk because they wouldn't be heard, but literally giving an eye view to each other and some look of excitement on their face that is basically saying to each other, as they're surrounded by all these people, throwing their cloaks, saying, this is it, boys. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is it. Lord, we'll go clear path in front of you. Okay. And here he comes riding in, and they're clearing a path, and people are putting all their cloaks down. Here come the palm branches, and people are shouting and praising. They th it would be like if you in your heart of hearts had so much evidence that had built and built and built, you come to a conclusion the rapture occurs before sundown tonight. And how would you live? If you honest, I mean, in your core, no doubt about it, not like 99%. If you are convinced the rapture occurs today, I will be in heaven before this day ends. Oh, okay, that's nice. What are you going to do? These people are jacked up excited. Look at verse 9. Matthew 21, verse 9. All these actions, worshipful act actions, now it's worshipful words. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the idea here is they say this over and over and over. So today is very teachy, all right? This has been a very teachy message. Not a lot of preaching. Don't let my volume make it. This has just been teaching. I'm just kind of maybe excited about the story. This is setting up everything for what's coming. Uh, I guess we had some teaching preaching points earlier about omniscience. Right now, we're just trying to get a picture as we're setting up each week for the next part of our story. Note three words. Hosanna. The phrase, son of David and blessed. Do y'all know what those mean? Hosanna, son of David. Everybody with me? Son of David I'm not going to have you answer out loud, but you, if you were here last week and paid attention, you should know what they're saying when they're calling Jesus son of David. It's not just like, hey, I hear that you're one of the descendants of David. Is that true? Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. No, you are the, what they're saying is, we are ascribing to you to be the prominent. David's been our greatest king, but God's been telling us one of his descendants is going to be a king far greater than David, and it's going to see, sit on David's throne forever. You're it. We believe you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. We know you are him. They're convinced. And they're shouting Hosanna. Now, this is the one that's kind of tough. Now, hang with me. Ready? Hosanna has an original root meaning that by the time of the Lord's appearance on earth was subtly there but not fully there. Okay? It had... We know that words are fluid. Like, we have a word that we use in church, right? Amen. Raise your hand if you know what the word amen actually means. It means what? So be it. So, and I'm not saying this negative, because I have done this. I have done this. Preachers preaching. This and that, and that's going to happen, and the Lord's going to bring judgment, and people are going to go to hell. Amen. So be it. 
But you could actually say, so be it. So be it, the will of the Lord. But even how we would say that, careful, do you know what the word means? But sometimes we just use it as a, a, amen, that's true, that's right. So that's how we'll use it. The word Hosanna had become, watch, a shout of worship. It had become an exclamation of worship in its own self, in its own self, just literally by itself. Hosanna! Hosanna, like praise. Praise to God. Hosanna. And often when we sing our songs, that's probably how most of us would assume that we're using that. Hosanna. Praise to the Lord. It it had come to mean that, but that's not its original meaning. It originally meant a cry, a plea to save. Hosanna. Save us. It's a plea. Would you please? So Hosanna was a blended word by the time of the Lord that was actually, yes, a cry of worship, an exclamation of worship. But it was also an invoking of Jesus, literally, save us now. Save us now. Who are they talking to? Son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. We believe you're the Christ, the Messiah. Save us now. You're the deliverer that God has sent. Save us. And, of course, this word blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed means honored is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glorified is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Exalted is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Honored, glorified, exalted, blessed. Hosanna, praise to the Lord. Save us. D.A. Carson writes it this way. The phrase in verse 9, Hosanna in the highest, is probably equivalent to this phrase we've heard earlier. Glory to God in the highest. Hang with me. He writes, the people, he's, he's trying to figure out how are they using this word, The people praise God in the highest heavens for sending the Messiah. So they're praising God in the highest heavens for sending the Messiah. And he writes, if Hosanna retains some of its original force, they are also crying to him, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, for deliverance. So thank you, God, for sending the Messiah. Messiah, save us. Save us. Save us now. Good news. Guess what? Just so happens that's exactly why Jesus came. Save us. Hosanna. Hosanna, it's like they're coming down. In essence, we could almost interpret that. Praise God. Save, 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 save us, save us. And here he comes, riding in. Save us. Good news. He came to save. Problem. What they mean in their mind and what's the intention of their heart is not what he's come to do. Y'all know what they mean. Save us. Save us. From who? Rome. Kick out Rome. Get rid of our enemies. They're our enemy. And the Lord's coming along saying, they're not your biggest enemy. I'm coming to save you. So Christ is coming to bring salvation and provide salvation, but the intent of their heart was salvation from Rome. But as MacArthur writes, Jesus did not come to conquer Rome, but to conquer a greater enemy, to conquer sin and death. So I'll repeat something I alluded to earlier. Ladies and gentlemen, you read your Bibles. Jesus didn't come in a chariot then. He didn't come on a war horse then. But one day, hopefully soon, he will come back on a war horse. We know the the horse's color will be white. And he's going to go all around the middle part of Palestine. And no doubt he'll make his way down into Jerusalem as, as it's over. And potentially he'll be riding on this war horse. And guys, that's going to be a tremendous victory as he is conquering 
Israel and the world and the believers, enemy, the armies, literally, no doubt, millions upon millions of the Antichrist armies who have the best, most modern weaponry, they will be no match for the Lord Jesus Christ as he rides on a war horse. And you may think, man, that's the greatest victory. No, no, no. That's a nice victory. This one's the greatest victory. And he does it by humbly riding a colt. And guys, I'm not, I don't mean this in any kind of blasphemous way. Jesus is so powerful that what's going to happen in the next few chapters, it's not even as much as what he does himself. It's what he allows to be done to him. He lets sinful mankind kill his physical body because that's the price of the ransom of sin. He sheds his blood, which we sang about a while ago. He shed his blood, and that allows the mercy of God. And he does it humbly. And I have just a few last thoughts on our text. Because that's the kind. The Jews, they read the scriptures, but they were blinded to the whole idea. There's two comings of the Messiah. Yes, the first one, he comes humbly. He submits to death, riding on a humble donkey. The second time he comes in power and great glory. But the key is that first one. One last thought out of 8 and 9. I'm going to go quickly at, nine and, at 10 and 11. Look at verse 9 one more time. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, if you don't hear anything else, you should hear this today. Jesus invites praise. Deliberately. Let me go further. Jesus invites Loud praise. He knows what's happening here. He does not correct this crowd. There is loud praise. Jesus invites passionate, joy-filled, hope-filled, zealous praise. Why? He wants it. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. If you don't hear anything else, you ought to take this home from the text. Jesus wants praise. He wants worship. It's his. Peter stops Cornelius from worshiping him. Get up. Don't do that. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 14. Paul stops the people of the city of Lystra from worshiping he and Barnabas. Stop. We are men of like nature. The same as you. We're no different than you. Stop doing that. Jesus does not stop. He may question someone's worship, but he does not stop their worship. Why? He desires worship. Everybody listen to me. I hope you pray to God. I hope you serve God. I hope you give your resources to the Lord. But if you do nothing else, listen to me, the number one main thing that God made you for was to worship His Son and to worship the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants your worship. So I have to ask you, how is your worship today? How is your worship? Are you like, I, I pray and I ask for a lot and I have great faith. Wonderful. I serve tirelessly. I've been doing it for years. Great. Please don't stop. I give, and I give sacrificially. That's awesome. How is your worship? Do you worship the Lord? Do you love him? Do you talk to him in that way? You, I'm talking to you. Do you worship the Lord? You say, I do. Great. When? When do you worship him? Where is this? Where is it at? Do you worship him in private? Do you worship him in private? You say, Jeff, I give thanks. I confess my sins. 
Do you worship the Lord Jesus Christ privately? What about publicly? What about when we come in here week to week? Do you worship Him in a corporate gathering? Check your heart. All you have to do is look back about an hour ago. Check your heart. Literally an hour ago, an hour and two minutes ago. Check your heart. Do you worship him corporately? This is what he wants. Or do you go, Jeff, I just find a hard time in public. It's very, very distracting, a lot going on. Guys, I can relate. I was not ADD when I was a kid. I think I've developed like a massive case of ADD. The older I've gotten, is just like, man. I'm going to tell you my little strategy. I sit on the front. That's just me. If I sat where some of you sat, I would probably, and again, I close my eyes. I'm standing up here today, and I'm literally end up facing that way somehow because the music got me to just to kind of, I don't watch the worship team. That would probably distract me. That's why I miss the words up so much. I peek at the screens. You say, well, Jeff, if you have a hard time, I want you to check your heart. Grace, for you, we ought to be a worshiping church. If you're not a worshiping individual and you say, I'm a Christian, I just have a hard time worshiping in corporate. Is this the reason why? Are you paralyzed? Because I've been there. I've done this. Are you paralyzed where you can't worship publicly because you're so concerned about what somebody else may think about you? If that's the case, be honest. If you're just like, ah, I don't, I'm not going to do. Or, or are you the worst? This is worse. I think it's coming up. Do you critique and judge those who are worshiping? Wondering, I don't know. And I think that, is that you? Stop it. It's not your job. You ought to be worshiping the Lord. But you're saying, I'm just so distracted or I'm worried about others. Here's our problem. You need to like strive and pray, Lord, help me not think about me. These folks here, they ain't thinking about themselves. They're consumed with Jesus. We need more of that. And then lastly, I've got to finish. Look at verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? How do they not know who Jesus is? Actually, guys, listen, this is very possible. I'm going to give you two reasons. You ready? This is very possible, number one, because you've got a lot of folks coming from out of the country. They would not have seen Jesus. And remember that most, the vast majority of Jesus' life and ministry has been lived up in Galilee. So there are literally many people in Judea and in Jerusalem who would not know Jesus by face. Oh, that's Jesus. They wouldn't know this. Galileans, they're like, oh, I remember him. He did that for my relative or friend. Oh, I hadn't seen him in two years. I definitely know who that is. That's the Galileans. But these in Jerusalem, they don't know who he is. But look at verse 11, and this is where we'll finish. And the crowd said, remember, I'm drawing a distinction. The crowds are the Galileans. Do you hear their pride? So these Judeans, these uppity, you know, better than them, Judeans, better than the Galileans. Look down on the Galileans. So here comes Jesus, and they're, who, who, who is this? Who is this? And their answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He's one of us. And you feel their pride. He's one of us. The Messiah is one of us. And he's here. And in their minds, it's time. And man, what a great scene for all these Galileans. I just leave you with two questions, and I don't even fully have the answer. I'm going to offer one answer. First question is this. Why that answer in verse 11? I don't have an answer for you. Here's my question. Why that answer? That's not the answer I would give. 
If somebody asked me, who, who is this? And I was going to talk about Jesus. What the answer they gave would not, no, no offense, it is absolutely true, Jesus is a prophet. That wouldn't be my first answer or my second or my third. Wouldn't be my first, second, or third. Probably wouldn't be my first, second, third, or fourth. It might be my fifth. What is this? This is the prophet Jesus. Why that? And here's my real issue with this crowd. With all the positives we said, I'm leaving with this thought. Where are they when Jesus is crucified? I'm not ready. I've not studied it. and I don't think this is going to happen. I'm not ready to say that they're the ones on that early morning that are crying crucify. I think that's going to be the Judeans. So I don't know that it's this crowd, but yet I still have to wonder, where are they? They're not at his defense. This is the crowd that the Pharisees and the chief priests are afraid of. This is the crowd. We better not do that until we have it on our terms because the crowd, they won't like it, and it could get really ugly really quick. You get 100,000, 200,000 Jews from Galilee, maybe 300,000. You get them stirred up. They don't want the Roman army to have to send in massive numbers. Things will get, get out of hand. Where are they? And so here's my, my question or my thought. Is it possible? In fact, write this note. The evidence seems to indicate from the text that by the end of the week when Jesus had not met their expectations, they're excited on Sunday or possibly Monday, but by the end of the week, Jesus has not met their expectations. Their great zeal and excitement has diminished. And in fact, are they not even really following him anymore? Are they not following him anymore? And y'all should already see where I'm going. Guys, all around the world, there are people today who are celebrating God. And they're worshiping Christ. But it's not the Christ of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the Christ of their own invention. Sitting here this morning, guarantee, guarantee you, there are people sitting here or watching online right now that worship Jesus zealously and they get really excited, but they don't really know him. And here's where it becomes evident. When they start finding out things in the word of God that God is different than how they've imagined him in their minds, they start rejecting that God. And they start not wanting to follow that and get all angry and bitter. I'm asking you this morning, are you willing to follow the true Lord Jesus Christ, the true God? Your final thought there is at the end. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he says, the day is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. I'm afraid many people in these tens and tens and tens of thousands, they know Jesus by face, and they have their version, their, their idea of Jesus and the Messiah, what he'll do, but he doesn't do it the way they thought, and so they stop following him, and they're not to be found later. Don't be that way. Can we bow our heads just for a moment? Just for a moment. So there is a real God who hates our sin, who must punish and judge our sin, but he loves us. Let this sink in. There is a God who hates our sin and will not tolerate our sin and must judge our sin, but he loves us so much in his mercy and grace that he sent his son, his own son, to save us. And he's given prophecies that are signs to indicate of all the billions of people who have ever lived 
How do we know which one is your son that is the true Christ, the Messiah, the true Savior? In fact, the Lord, the Lord of lords and King of kings. How will we know him? Ladies and gentlemen, this morning we looked at one fulfilled prophecy out of over 300 Jesus fulfilled. So my point here, you need not look for another one. Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies. He's met all the signs. They all point directly to Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the Lamb of God who died on a cross for your sins to take them away. And if you will trust him this morning, like literally hear this and say, I believe that, and bring God into your consciousness and talk with God. God, I believe what that preacher just said. I believe what he said about you, that you give free salvation, eternal life, and you're omniscient, that we receive it because Jesus' death was enough to pay for all our sins. If you've never done that, and we can help you, let us know. You can do that right now. But just before I pray, very briefly, I mean it, pay attention. Do you worship God? You're made for it. You're made for it. He wants your worship. Do you worship Him in private? Where? When? What would it take for you to get quiet and not just ask for things only and not just confess sins and not even only say thank you? What would it take for you just to say, Lord, I love you? And here's some reasons why. Because you are, and then go down a list and just love on the Lord and let Him draw close to you. He wants your worship. Ladies and gentlemen, you do that through the week. And then when we come in here, you pray and you strive to focus only on the Lord Jesus. And you block everything else out. And we'll worship Him corporately. And if you find things to be a distraction, I invite you. Today, there were several seats up on the front. That's just me. It's kind of like if the place was general admission and it's something I really wanted to get the most from, I'd get there early and I'd get up close. If that's what you need to do. Then you come back next week and you just decide, I'm going to get as close as I possibly can. I want to focus on Him and Him alone and just worship Him. That's what He wants. And then just before I pray, worship Him as He is. Grace for you, when you study the Bible and we need to, when you get to know the Lord, you will come across things you may not like and you just determine, God, I want the real you. I want to serve you and I want to worship you in spirit from my soul and my spirit, my body engaged as well. But I want it to be in truth. Not, I don't want to invent you in my mind, a version of you that I like. I want the true God. I want to know what you're like and I'm going to take it all. You're God, I'm not. So you reveal yourself and I'm just going to worship you more fully more informed the more I learn let's pray Father you know all things you know all things Lord Jesus you know all things you know our hearts Lord you know the ones that right now have some unconfessed sin they've maybe been fooled into thinking nobody knows about God I pray that right now right now God would you convict them of that sin help them to turn from it repent and turn to you and receive your forgiveness Lord, if anyone here this morning is not a true Christian and we can help them, God, give them a drawing to the Lord Jesus. Lord, may they come and even speak to us so we can show them from the Word of God what your promises say and help them believe. Father, I pray that you'd make us a worshiping people in private and a worshiping people in public. 
because your son is worthy and you're worthy. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week this week.